Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Gekonia, east of the albino hills and south of the raging leucistic river, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, citizens of Geconia. I hope everybody's doing good tonight. Tonight is December 17th, 2013. Uh, it's not pretty hard today out in Pennsylvania, but um, I kind of like it. Um, I want to mention to all you guys that uh, Gecko Nation Radio and Herpentine Radio have teamed up to help promote each other. And um, Herpentine is basically my inspiration uh, to start my career in radio. And... Um, I give a lot of credit to JD and Justin for what they do. They have some of the biggest named guests and some, some of the most important topics in herpetoculture. And uh, their show is very broad-based as far as uh, what they discuss. And, you know, our, our show here is a little bit more uh, catered to the gecko community, of course. And we'll, we will be branching out into other areas like we do. But um, Herpentime is very broad-based. So if you guys really want to uh, expand your horizons and learn about different areas of herpetoculture, that is the show to go to. Um, and there's other great radio shows as well. So definitely look into it. Um, Blog Talk Radio is a terrific forum for radio. If you have aspirations of um, basically broadcasting your voice and uh, making something out of it, by all means, um, do it. It's a lot of fun. Um, I'd also like to wish Sean from Heavy Duty Reptiles happy birthday today. Happy birthday, Sean. Uh, tonight's episode is special, all right? This is a roundtable discussion. It's all about breeding and incubation. And um, in addition to our great sponsors, uh, this show is also uh, has a special product placement and um, definitely one of, one of the best rack building and incubator companies around, if not the very best, and that is Sea Serpents and Hotbox Incubators. Now, for this episode... Uh, Chris at Sea Serpents and Hotbox uh, graciously is giving a discount, a special discount, to anyone that mentions Gecko Nation Radio from now until Sunday, this upcoming Sunday, the 22nd. Okay, and in order to get your discount on a rack or an incubator, you have to email Chris and just mention Gecko Nation Radio, and he will give you a discount on your order. The discount will be different depending on which products you're going to get. Uh, or you're interested in, because um, there's just a broad, very broad base of um, uh, products and prices, okay? So keep that in mind. Very proud to have Sea Serpents and Hot Box Incubator sponsor this special episode. Um, and speaking of sponsors, this show would not be possible without our great sponsors. Check them out. Uh-huh. 
Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by abdragons.com is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches. Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps, abdragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt reptile heat tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. Razor Sharp Reptiles. Like the name suggests, Jamie Carnes has some sharp gecko and snake projects in the works. He is very well known for his work with rare species, such as cave geckos, but also has some of the prettiest radar projects I've ever seen. Razor Sharp Reptiles is also known for high-end fat tails and beautiful rainwater leopard gecko morph projects. Check out RazorSharpReptiles.com online and on Facebook. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need, from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more, and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or... It can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types, from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. Okay, everybody. Uh, something that's new that's going on with Gecko Nation Radio is uh, we picked up a new sponsor, uh, Rainbow Mealworms. You guys can check out rainbowmealworms.net um, online. There's a couple other ones that are trying to copy off of them. Make sure you go to rainbowmealworms.net. That's the right one. They are the biggest worm farm in the country out in California. And uh, most of us uh, big, <clears throat> excuse me, most of us big breeders uh, exclusively use Rainbow. I know uh, Ron Tramper does. In fact, Ron is the one that turned me on to Rainbow. And um, definitely check them out, um, rainbowmealworms.net. Now, as you guys know, uh, Gecko Nation Radio is also the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. So check this thing out. Wrong plug. <laughs> Did you know that since 2006, there's been a treasure trove of history and information on leopard geckos and other species? Well, Gecko Forums is the most extensive database of leopard gecko history on the web right now. Take a look and delve into the past, present, and future of this great community. The biggest contributors, breeders, and hobbyists have left their mark there. Now it's your turn. Look, learn, and post away. Need a place to post animals for sale? Look no further. 
visit geckoforums.net and become a member today. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to be the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. All right, everybody. Tonight's show, I'm going to structure as best as I can, and um, we're going to start at the very beginning. I'm going to basically ask each one of our guests uh, specific questions so that we can basically get a good grasp of how to do a step-by-step process as far as breeding and incubation goes. So basically, my first question is going to be, is going to be directed um, at one of our guests, and it's going to be, what is the the best age and weight to start breeding your Leos at? And then we're going to go from there. If we have time in the second half of the show, we will certainly take it. And the calling number for that is 646-478-5331. Again, it's 646-478-5331. Tonight's distinguished guests are John Scarborough from GeckoBoa.com, Matt Veronic from Sasebeck Reptiles, and, of course, Marsha McGinnis from Golden Gate Geckos. I'm going to go ahead and bring on our guests. Let's start with Marsha. Hey, Marsha, how are you? Hello. I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, it's great to have you. I'm doing good, Marsha. Good. For people that don't know who you are, just quickly do a quick... Um, uh, you know, little recap of who you are and what you do. Well, I'm Marsha McGinnis, and I own uh, Golden Gate Geckos. I've uh, been working with uh, geckos since 19, or well, breeding geckos, actually, since 1995. Uh, and I work with, currently work with seven species of geckos. And I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. Awesome. All right. I'm going to go ahead and bring on John now. John Scarborough, you're live on Gecko Nation Radio. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Good, John. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself real quick. Um, My name is John Scarborough. I own and operate Gecko Boa Reptiles. I'm based out of Colorado. Um, I mainly specialize in leopard geckos, uh, wild types, and morphs. Um, I do work with some boa constrictors, a few monitor species, um, and a few other species of geckos. Um, You can check out my website at geckoboa.com. Awesome. And last but not least, we have Matt Veronic. You're live on Gecko Nation Radio. Hey, guys. What's up? How's it going? Good. Who are you, Matt? What do you good, do? Good. Uh, well, I'm, I'm also a leopard gecko breeder. Um, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I own and operate uh, Fastobac Reptiles. I've uh, been doing this for a few years now and uh, just newly moved to Connecticut is where I'm based out of now. Cool. All right. Now, tonight's show, as you guys know, is the roundtable discussion about breeding and incubation. Um, I think a good place to start, and I'm going to try to, so we don't stumble and talk all over each other, I'm going to direct each question at one of you, and then after you answer the question, I'll ask the other two if they have anything they'd like to add to it. So this way we're not talking over each other or anything. So um, ladies first, Marsha, what is the best age... And quiet children, please. What is the best age and weight for breeding uh, males and females, Marcia? 
Well, in, in the olden days, we used to say 36 to 38 grams in six months for females was okay, and um, it just isn't. Uh, so I think over time, uh, the more we've learned and the more we've worked with them, that uh, there's it, it, there's no it, real magic number as far as an age or weight goes, but I try to uh, I try to keep it to at least uh, a year old minimum for females. Fifty grams in weight. Um, it would be better to have a sixty gram female uh, breeding. Now for males, it's a little bit less. I've got males that uh, can reach, uh, you know, forty-five to fifty grams by the time they're. Uh, six months old, and they can they can be um, uh, you know uh, sexually active at that point. I don't know that I would put them through the stress of that, but um, I think males probably nine months, uh, and you know uh, at least fifty grams is is uh, what I what I what that's what I do. That's what I work for, strive for. Okay. Um, what do you, um, John? Do you have anything you'd like to add to that? And then we'll go to Matt. Um, I, I think it's just a combination of things. It's not necessarily a weight. Um, you know, I, I breed my Afghans. I bred females as low as 33, 35 grams. Hold on last a second, year. John. Just if anybody's if anybody's making noise, uh, just hit the mute button so it's not on the radio because uh, speakers are very sensitive and um, we're hearing a lot of background noise. Go ahead, Matt. Um, go ahead, John. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, no worries. Um, I, I think it depends sometimes on the genetics of the animal. Um, I mean, if you're talking, say, wild types, an Afghan female can, you know, breed and lay eggs perfectly fine at 33. You know, I had some at like 33, 35 grams last year that bred fine for me. Um, no egg binding at all, no problems. Um, for instance, uh, if, you, if you're talking Angamani, that would... <laughs> You know, we're looking at two to three years and at least at least 70, 80 grams before a female will lay eggs. So there can be a very big difference just depending on the genetics of the animal. Um, for most macularis, I mean, a safe bet is um, usually above 50 grams is what, you know, most people say for the most part. And then, you know, if you, if you go much lower than that, you can kind of risk egg binding. But... I mean, it's, it depends on the age of the animal and also the, the weight. So some people can get a, a gecko to heavy weights really young, and that doesn't mean you should breed it that young. So I'm all about slow-growing my animals and keeping them, you know. I basically want them to reach about 45, you know, grams at like 10 months or something like that, it's 9 to 10 months, and that way they're – that way they're, they hit the weight at about the same time as it, that they're mature at the same time, so. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we got basically got some of the uh, aspects are you guys kind of agree on. Uh, what do you What do you think, Matt? What do you have in your experience? Today? Uh, I, I I definitely agree with John that it definitely uh, is uh, pretty much determined about uh, you know by the the genetics of the animal. Some animals just don't get as big. Some get you know much larger. So having a generic you know like 50 gram thing is 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 really hard to tell the general public. Um, it, it definitely has to do with uh, genetics and how you know big the animal is supposed to be getting, um, and that all just depends on, uh, like John said, on the genetics and uh, you know just knowing your animals and knowing how big uh, the animal should be uh, before it can safely be bred. 
Okay, and I, and I think Marsha's advice is sound as far as if you're a new breeder and um, you basically don't know how to determine, you know, what what your you know basically how how good your geckos are going to breed at a certain age or, or size. I think a good rule of thumb is to wait a year, wait till they're about a year old, and you know play it safe. I think as you become more experienced and you get to know your geckos and you get to know uh, breeding, I think you'll be able to make make more different uh, determinations based on a case you know on a case to case basis uh, with your animals. But um, yeah, I think I agree with all you guys. Um, now I'm sure one of the questions somebody's going to ask is now are these ages and sizes different? when it comes to giants. And um, I know, Matt, you don't work too much with giants. I know, John, you do. And I'm not sure about Marsh. I don't think you do either. But why don't we start I, with John yeah, with this I, I only have a couple of giants, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, John, you have some experience with giants. Um, I'll give this one to you first. Do you think there's any, any difference when it comes to size and age with giants as far as breeding them? Um, yeah, I definitely do. I think, I think giants do grow slower or they grow for a longer period of time um so they can uh they can reach bigger weights at a quicker in a, in a less time or a smaller time frame but um they do take longer longer to get to that age so if i have a if i have a giant that hatched late late in the season i won't even try to breed it the next year i'll actually wait two years to breed it um which is kind of interesting because it's kind of the same thing with, like, Angermani. They, they say that, you know, they don't – well, I've never had one or I've never seen one breed under two years. So they say two to three years with that. And I'm sure Matt can vouch for that too because he has some animals, that you know, that are a year old that didn't breed this last year. So um, it kind of goes with that same thing. that These these geckos will grow for a longer period of time if they if their maximum size gets larger. But – I have bred giants in the first year. Usually it's like giants that were were hatched earlier in the season, and then, you know, they have maybe like 15 months to grow or so. Um, I have bred them at that time. <clears throat> a lot of people think that that stunts their growth. I think it stunts their growth for a, at least a short period of time, um, but after that they can start growing again later on. So I think over two or three years they'll, they'll, they'll still reach a larger size, you know, but – when they are actually breeding, most geckos go off food anyway for that period of time, um, at least to start off with, and so they will they will slow down on growth. But yeah, the giants. I would definitely say you'll, you'll probably notice it too when when you're breeding that you know if the gecko is five months old and sixty grams, you shouldn't be breeding it anyway. It's too young, and mm-hmm. so if you know if it's nine, ten months old, and it gets up to 80, and then it ovulates at that time, then you probably are okay to breed it at that time. Um, I mean, I, I'm a big believer, actually, that giants are recessive anyway, but, you know, as far as as far as far that goes, I think they're, for the most part, they're the same as normal leopard geckos, but the ones that actually get bigger, I think they do take uh, a longer period of time to to breed. Okay. Do, do any other guys have anything to add to that about the giants? Matter, Marsha? Uh, I've actually seen giant females that were that were bred early, and they actually gained even more weight during the breeding season. Um, <laughs> which uh, you know that, that that's kind of an abnormality. But uh, I've actually seen a 90 gram female 
um, that she was 90 grams whenever she first started breeding. And uh, at the end of the season, she was uh, 120. Wow. <laughs> um, which is, you know, like, that that's definitely not the norm. Um, and like like John said, I, I think if if you're looking to see how how big your animal can get before you breed it, um, then you know that's you you would definitely want to wait that year to two year mark um, just to see how big the female would get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, if you breed a male too early, uh, they run the risk of a prolapse. Uh, if, from what uh, you know, I understand now. Um, if that should happen. Uh, that's a pretty bad thing. Uh, would would one of you uh, like to discuss a little bit what a prolapse is? I think Marsha's a good one to handle this. Um, sure, Marsha, why don't you tell us? Yeah, why don't you tell us about what a what a male well, prolapse is and how it can affect um, things? Um, yeah, they can be pretty. They can they 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 can be serious. Um, but they uh, sure is something you don't want to have to deal with it if you can help it. But essentially. The uh, male's reproductive organ, which is called the hemipenis, is uh, a two-lobed organ. So because they breed from the side, um, it's, uh, there's, there's one on each side. And they stay neatly tucked away uh, most of the time, um, just at the, underneath the base of the tail. But then during breeding, uh, one will evert. Um, and that it, that means it, it comes out and they line up the cloaca. Their cloaca is the male and female, and then that's where uh, breeding occurs and copulation and then uh, the sperm transfer. Um, but there is a lot of reasons why a, a hemipenis may not uh, invert, which means go back into where it's supposed to go. Um, one, one reason is uh, uh, injury. Uh, the other reason is uh, I think sometimes males can be, uh, if they're really overweight uh, and there's a lot of fat deposits around their vent area, that can, um, that can um, also, you know, contribute to hemipenile prolapse. Um, males that are too young uh, can, too, I've, you know, I've experienced several incidences of prolapse you know, in the last 17 or 18 years, and only one of them, um, only in one incident, I was not able to resolve it um, myself, uh, and it required sur- surgery. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's, it, it's tough. I, I mean, um, what about you, uh, Matt or John? Do you guys like to add to that? Uh, I, I've only ever had four males that have prolapsed. Um and uh, on two of them, they they lost the hemipene on that side, but were still able to breed um, using the other side. Uh, one prolapsed both hemipenes. They were both out for close to a month, and I actually, you know, uh, had to, you know, keep them on a moist paper towel and, you know, a, a, a apply, you know, topical ointment to him. And, you know, finally they, they went back in on their own. Um, the other one, uh, and basically I put him on the shelf for, uh, for, you know, that whole year and and didn't breed him again. Um, I'll actually try to breed him this year to see if, uh, if he's able to breed or not. Um, the other one actually, he prolapsed one side of his hemipene that was out for about a week. Um, I was able to put it back in, uh, gave him about a two week rest. 
and um, actually, you know, to see if he actually could breed again. I tried breeding him again, and he actually bred with no problem and was able to put the hemi team back in. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, and actually none of these animals were young animals. Uh, they were all over a year of age. To, most of them were, uh, I mean, a couple of them were actually like three or four years of age whenever it happened. Um, whenever I have seen it, it has been um, usually the beginning of the breeding season. Um, sometimes the females aren't quite as receptive um, whenever the male's breeding. Um, I think that's basically what had, what had happened on, you know, most of those cases was, you know, maybe the female pulled away a little bit too soon um, and kind of, you know, maybe stretched the male a little bit um, where he was unable to put a, you know, put everything back to where it goes. Um, and, uh, but, you know, as far as it being a, you know, a, a devastating injury, I think the only way that that really happens is if it goes untreated and it becomes infected or anything like that, or if the, mm -hmm. if the male loses both heavy teams. Um, I've actually seen it in knobtail geckos as well, where uh, an animal has lost, uh, you know, one uh, hemi peen on the one side and was still able to breed. Um, and, you know, still, you know, a viable father. Uh, I've also seen it, uh, or, well, I've heard of it in ball pythons and stuff like that. Um, that's, that's pretty much why they have two is just in case, you know, something happens to one, they're still, they're still okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's, that's good information. Uh, I hope, any, I hope you guys out there never have to experience something like that because it is, uh, it is difficult. To, you know. Can I add? Can I add one more thing to Abs that too? Absolutely, Marcia. Go ahead. Well, please. Um, and I, I, I forgot another uh, contributing reason. And in, in listening to Matt, kind of reminded me uh, that a male might uh, experience a hemipenile prolapse, and that is um, sperm plugs. Um, so what what sometimes happens, uh, especially with young younger males, um, they you know they're always very ac uh, excited about. Uh, breeding season, especially if there's pheromones in the air and they know that there is ovulating females. So sometimes ejaculation takes place before the uh, hemipenis is, is completely out or in, in being caught in copulation and uh, semen can um, kind of leak out into the pocket where the hemipenis pouch, uh, you know, where it's stored <laughs> safely. And sometimes mm -hmm. and it, it can get kind of hard, and, and I don't mean hard, hard. It, 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 it gets kind of rubbery, if, I guess, if you will, or semi-solid in there. It congeals. Yeah, there you go. Thank you for the word. That's good. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, a lot of times the hemipenis can come out, uh, but with, you know, with a lot of that uh, residue, and, and uh, my vet calls it smegma, you know, that's inside the the uh, pocket will prevent the hemipenis from uh, inverting or from coming back, going back where it belongs. It'll, it'll. Uh, so sometimes those need to be taken care of. Um, I know how to get rid of sperm plugs, but I've been doing this for a long time too. So it's not, it's not something I would recommend for just anybody. So sometimes, a, sometimes veterinary um, interference uh, or, or you know is a, um, protocol. Yeah, I've I've had that happen where I had um, I noticed that one of my males one of one of his bulges was getting way bigger than the other, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then finally, it kind of started showing itself through his 
cloaca there, and it was what you're calling a sperm plug. So basically, I took some. Um, I think, I think I used organic olive oil just to lubricate the area, and then I, with tweezers, I was able to actually pull the plug out. Yeah. And yeah, he was no worse for wear afterwards. He seemed fine, and he right. fine that season. Yeah. So occasionally, you know, occasionally that will turn into a you know almost like an internal cyst or a you know some kind of growth that uh, becomes um, you know encapsulated in tissue. Um, and mm-hmm. it, there's a blood supply around it, so you have to be kind of careful. But in most cases, um, you know, sperm plugs are not that uh, complicated to remove yourself. Um, if you certainly don't. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel like you, you can handle it, take take them to a vet. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. And I, I would think the next step in in our discussion here would be all right. Now that we figured out what the best age and sizes are, and give you guys an idea how to handle that, I think the next step would be to determine. When the breeding season is, I get a lot of questions about, hey, Dave, when does the breeding season start? And, you know, it can really be different based on your area. Um, I'll, let, I'll give this one to Matt first. Uh, what do you think, Matt? When do females start ovulating? When does the, the season start? Um, I, I've had females start anywhere from, like, as early as, like, October sometimes, um, depending on the females. Uh I, I definitely have a, a couple groups of females that they actually breed much earlier than everybody else. Um, and I know a lot of people will say, well, October is kind of, you know, the previous year. But uh, it's uh, it's one of those things that it they're they're actually a little bit older females, and they've uh, went a month early every year of their life, basically. So they did actually start off in the, in the right year at one point, and then they, they go about a month earlier uh, every year. Um, I also mm-hmm. have other animals that, uh, you know, that they'll definitely go a little bit later. Um, usually first, first year females will go a little bit later just because, uh, they're, they're not quite old enough yet. Um, so I, I would say to the best thing to do for starting to look for ovulations is you want to start looking between like, the December, January, February, um, and then breeding will usually take place, uh, you know, about two weeks after you start seeing it in the room, um, you'll you'll notice that they'll want to breed a little bit easier um, after about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, John, would you like to add to that? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, for me, I, I, at this point, I have a female pretty much ovulating all year round, so you're always going to have those oddballs that kind of ovulate, ovulate in the off-season. Um, but for me, myself, at my most of my females go around June, July. Um, my season's pretty late, so like this year, I had maybe 50% of my geckos actually hatched in August this year. So <laughs> everything's everything's on a later schedule for me. And I mean, I don't know if that's just due to my location or um, you know uh, maybe barometric pressure or whatever it is. It's just uh, everything usually goes later here. Um, but yeah, I usually get a few females. Like I got like one, one or two females right now that are ovulating that I'm breeding. And then um, January it starts maybe three or four, and then after that it starts picking up all the way till you know, usually uh, June. Almost everything's ovulating in my whole room. So, or or at least laying eggs are ovulating at that time. So, um, interesting. Want to add? Want to add one other thing to the to the the prolapse? Um, that you were talking about earlier too. It's just I've had 
I probably had eight or nine prolapses over the years, and if you ever get this problem, I mean, I learned this from Steve Sykes, which I think if anybody has experience with this, it would probably be him. And um, whenever I get this situation, I just soak the mail, like, under some warm water for maybe 30 to 45 minutes. Um, and I, Well, when I first see, I always check the males whenever they come out of the female's tub, and I check to see if they have a prolapse at that time. It's a good point to check. That way you catch it as early as possible. Um, if they have a prolapse at that time, I'll actually uh, throw them into a, a tub, only only the tub with uh, maybe like a half inch of warm water, just enough to like keep, you know, continually soaking um, their junk down there. And um, after 45 minutes, I take them out and then I throw them into a uh, tub with really sopping, soaking wet paper towels. And... I've never had to go to the vet for this. It's every every instance, it's it's healed itself. Even if I caught it late, it pretty much heals itself in the situation. So, if you throw it into a sopping uh, a tub with paper towels, really really wet, that way it's pretty much soaked the whole time. And usually it'll go in within a day or two. Um, sometimes it's taken three to four days, but every time it's gone in perfectly fine. Um, and just make sure you keep it very clean if they poop, just like immediately clean it out because you don't want that water, you know, um, creating any other issues. Yeah, that's, a, be very that's a very good point. Very good point. So literally every other day at least clean it out, change all the paper towels, you know, completely spray it out, clean it. And I've never had one that, you know, required required the vet. I thought I was going to, but, you know, I reached out to Steve Sykes about that because he, he pretty much has more experience than anybody I know, at least, that, with that. Maybe Ron Trump or two, but, you know, he, uh, I think it really was good information. I used to do the whole sugar water, and I do the, you know, preparation preparation H. You know, the whole idea behind that is to, to get that hemipene, the swelling, to go down. But I think just soaking water and uh, just the, the moist paper towels always works, you know. I mean... I had three last year, and every one worked perfectly fine. And they were, they were, you know, in within a couple of days. I, I waited a couple of months, and I rebred them, and everything went fine. So, anyway, All right. sorry to no, get off on the tangent again, but thought it was no. That's that's okay. We'll we'll go back to the to the breeding season. Um, I'll I'll add that um, my season here usually starts uh, the end of December and into January, but it seems like it's getting a little earlier each year. Every year it gets to be like three weeks earlier for some reason. Like I have females starting to ovulate now, and uh, they're setting other females off because the pheromones are flowing. And I know, Marsha, your season starts, what, in March or February? Yeah, yeah. Can, am, I, okay. am, I on, uh, am I on mute? <laughs> um, no, I, you're, I can hear oh, you. Oh, okay. Okay, good. All, All right. right. All right. Uh, yeah, um, you know, my, my season is pretty, starts pretty late. And it ends a little earlier than than most too. So, but I have found that once, like like John said too, uh, once one or two females start ovulation, um, the rest of them will too. Um, so it's kind of a it's kind of a phenomenon that we find in in populations of uh, female species, uh, even in human beings. I mean, for example. Um, 
women in uh, or, or young women in um, you know that are institutionalized either you know let's say that they're in jail or if they're in a boarding school or things like that uh, for any length of time uh, they'll eventually you know start their they'll do their menstruation cycle um, you know pretty much together at the same time every 28 days so I think that 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 uh, really contributes to it but the other thing is, uh, I don't. Uh, I know that there are some breeders who are much larger scale uh, that that will actually manipulate the you know the light and temperature cycle in order to have females you know ready to breed and egging year round. Um, I I don't do that because I need a break, <laughs> you know, but. But they pretty much cycle themselves uh, when right after Thanksgiving, or, or excuse me, right after um, the it would be the, let's see it would be the autumn uh, equinox. They when the nights start getting longer than the days, they'll stop ovulation, and then sometime after you know the holidays, uh, once the daytime becomes the daytime hours become markedly longer than the nighttime hours. Uh, that, that's usually what triggers ovulation in, in my geckos. So I don't. I just let them cycle themselves. But there's always an oddball here and there that uh, you know that starts early or late, um, and that's okay. Yeah, um, I'll give this one to uh, to Matt. Hey Matt, how long does a female ovulate for? And um, after that. Well, yeah, let's just stick with that for now. How long does, will a female usually ovulate for once she starts? And can she ovulate more than once in a season? Um, let's go with... Uh, <laughs> um, I, I've actually not put a male in for, like, up to two to three weeks after um, I noticed an ovulation, um, just because mm-hmm. the males were getting rotated around and stuff like that. And, you know, she was... The, the female was still able to breed and, um, you know, produce viable young. Um, but, I mean, I, I kind of do something that's, you know, a little bit different than most people where um, once I start getting good eggs from a female, um, you know, that's that's pretty much the last time the male goes in. Um, I, I don't like to, you know, crank, crank my females, like make them produce, you know, uh, 15, 20, you know, eggs. Uh, most of my females will average uh, about eight, eight eggs I'll get out of them. Um, that's, you know, not all of them are fertile all the time, um, but usually I'll get, uh, you know, four clutches, sometimes five. And that's that's pretty much average uh, for me. Um, you know, that being said, that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm getting ten babies out of each female either um, because they you got to account for infertility and stuff like that as well. But... Uh, uh, you know, as as far as will a female, like, you know, double ovulate in a season, um, typically not unless you're, you know, trying to make her do that. Um, if if she is, you know, just set up normally in a tub and you're not manipulating anything with, like, the light and temperature, um, she, she won't do that. Uh, usually once you miss the ovulations for the year, um, it's, it's pretty much over. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, the... The first ovulation, she can, uh, you can definitely take your time to put the male in, um, because usually what I do is, like I said, uh, once I notice it for the first time, I'll even wait about a week before I actually put the male in, 
um, just to make sure that the ovulations are, you know, bigger in size and, uh, you know, that the female is more highly uh, receptive towards the male. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, John, would you like to add to that? Um, I kind of, I mean, I just, whenever I see an ovulation, <clears throat> I just pretty much will throw the male in. And I think, I think any time during that time, there's, you know, a good chance that they're going to be receptive. Um, and, you know, male, the females will retain the sperm anyway, even if it maybe it's a little early or a little late. For the most part, it'll, you know, it'll work out. Um, I had a few geckos last year. I think I I was waiting on a rack order, so I didn't breed them. Like right when the ovulation happened, I think I waited about a month. And they were still ovulating when I threw a male in, but I didn't get any eggs out of them. So um, I think if you wait, if you wait too long, even if they're still ovulating, you could lose out on, on that season for that female. So Yeah. Um, yeah. Only other times I've seen double ovulations in a year. I've seen it where, like, a female ovulated. I threw a male in and nothing happened. Like, there were no eggs, and she just, you know, ovulations went away, and uh, I just thought that was it. And then, you know, a couple months later, all of a sudden she was gone again. So that's the only time I've really seen it double in a year. Well, can I can I interject again? Absolutely, yeah, Marsha. You're, you're right. next anyway. <laughs> well, oh, good. I didn't want to take cuts or anything. <laughs> you know, uh, leopard geckos actually ovulate continually through breeding season. So, in other words, there's not a single ovulation. So, when when Matt like Matt and John were both talking about ovulations as a plural. Um, that's, that is accurate because once breeding season begins, uh, the, you know, the female will produce an, uh, you know, a follicle or an, it's, it's a, it's a, a, it's an egg in, in situ or an egg that's developing, uh, off of the, uh, ovary. And so in, I mean, in, Best case scenario, if, you, if you're a good, healthy female, I mean, they can ovulate two egg follicles every two weeks, every 14 days. Uh, but if she's not entire... fertilized, it, it'll it'll just stop after like three weeks to a month, perhaps. Right? What the ovulations? Well, yeah. okay. Well, yes and no. Sometimes it can just stop, and other times, uh, see, generally speaking, the you know the eggs are looking to be fertilized so that they can develop into eggs in the oviducts. Um, and so, if they're not fertilized, they are usually they degenerate and you know disintegrate and are, and are reabsorbed back into the female system. Now, sometimes that does not happen and the you know the the ovum or the large egg you know the follicles have already produced an ovum and if they're not you know if they're not fertilized or absorbed back into the female's body then that can cause um that can cause some problems uh with the female um is in in terms of uh, you know an infection or sometimes those unfertilized uh, ovum uh, become um, infertile eggs, uh, and they actually develop and are passed through just like fertile eggs are, but they're they're not fertile at all. So, you know, so it takes a trained eye uh, to learn to see 
the egg follicles that are developing through a female leopard gecko's abdomen. But I've, I have seen cases where a female uh, has got a good, a good-sized uh, pair of, you know, uh, ovum, or you know, that are that are probably they, in most cases they're fertilized, and then they will be developing another set right behind them. So there are times that you can see multiple, sometimes four, uh, two two complete sets of uh, develop uh, of uh, ovum that are uh, produced from the uh, ovary. So. I've had females lay eggs every 14 days for the entire breeding season and other females that, you know, will only lay maybe one or two, three at the most clutches. And if they're still, you know, healthy, uh, then I can reintroduce them to the male uh, to start getting more um, eggs, uh, more fertile eggs. But um, it's it's a science. I mean, it's something that you definitely need to to learn, and it is learnable. And um, each female is a little bit different, and some some are very robust, and and some just have a hard time recovering between clutches of eggs, so they're not necessarily good candidates to rebreed. But yeah, so to, to clear up the to clear up the questions about what is ovulation. Ovulation is when their two ovaries produce a follicle, which is a, uh, a an undeveloped egg or an uh, undeveloped ovum, which is the the cell that produces the egg, uh, and it breaks off as it's mature and goes into the oviduct, uh, waiting to be fertilized. And if it's not fertilized, it usually just dissolves and is absorbed back into the female system. On rare occasions, it can develop into an egg that gets passed that is infertile. So that's how it works. Gotcha. Um, all right. Well, that's that's understood. All right. So we got our we have our ovulating female, and we know it's the breeding season. She's up to the right weight. She's got the right age to where we're confident that she's a healthy female. And um, I think something that is important to know, we can we can just touch on, and I think it's more or less common sense at this point, is the fact that um, up until now, the female should have been supplemented uh, properly with, with uh, vitamins and calcium. Um, I guess we can touch on this real quick. Uh, when you're getting your females ready for breeding, um, and I'll start, with, um, I'll start with John with this one, um, how do you supplement and uh, get them the right calcium. What's your regimen, John, for that? Um, pretty much for all my all my breeders and uh, pretty much all my adult leopard geckos and even my babies as well. I uh, I don't use like an extra calcium dish ever. Um, I just I use those uh, mealworm dishes and those superworm dishes have the little plastic lid on top. It keeps the worms from escaping. But I basically put the I put a a lot of worms or dubio, whatever I'm feeding to the, the gecko, and I I use a uh, calcium and vitamin um, powder on top, and I mix it in pretty well. Um, I do throw a little bit extra when there's females that are laying eggs, um, just so they have that always there. But you know that that food dish actually doubles as a um, as the feeder dish and as the calcium dish, so they can always go in there and get extra calcium when they need it. Um, I don't think I've ever had an issue of over-supplementing the geckos. 
um, especially with the worms. You know, the worms, they usually shed the calcium or whatever you dusted them with pretty quickly. Um, even even the other feeders, they, they typically clean themselves to an extent that, you know, you don't really have to worry about that too much. Um, I use uh, I use a mixture of vitamin to to calcium, uh, about four to one. And for calcium, I use Osteoform SA, and I use that with a 50-50 mixture with uh, RepCal calcium. Um, I've, I've used straight Osteoform before. I haven't really had a big issue with the, the phosphorus ratio, in my opinion, but um, if you buy RepCal in bulk, like the really big uh, bulk um, tub, it's actually a little cheaper than buying Osteoform SA. Um, so I just mix it in half anyway, and... You know, it does cut down the phosphorus ratio, if that's really an issue, but I haven't actually seen that in my collection. But Okay. Um, how about you, Matt? You want to talk about your regimen? Uh, mine, they, they just get the, uh, the the normal, just like John does, only I just use straight-up Osteoform SA and uh, Viamate. Uh, it's, it, it's about a four-to-one mixture, I think. Uh, what I've been doing recently is just uh, doing the 10-pound the tub and then one of the uh, containers of Osteoform SA. It just makes it easier than measuring everything out. Um, and I've been using that for years with uh, with no issues. Um, so it's one of those things that, uh, you know, it, it would take a lot for me to switch to anything else. Okay, how about you, Marsha? Okay, um, am I still on? I guess you can't hear me, right? Oh, okay. You know, I can't remember when I push the mute button or not. <laughs> so, well, who's making all the noise in the background? That's what I want to know. Well, it's not me. I'm just sitting here being minding my own business. Um, I'm I don't sitting want here watching hockey. So. I don't want you yelling at me or anything, David. <laughs> I'm not yelling at anybody. It might, it might I know. be. I'm, I'm trying well, to eat dinner at the same time, so sorry. <laughs> Whatever um, it is, we can hear everything you're doing. But go ahead. <laughs> okay. Go ahead, Marcia. Okay, so the question is, what is my um, uh, supplementation regime? Yep. Okay, yeah, well, I have emails and your mail's ready. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, uh, everybody gets uh, calcium without vitamin D uh, year-round every time their um, bowl of mealworms gets replaced or topped off. Now, I will switch to um, calcium with vitamin D for egging and laying females and growing babies because, I, I've, like John, I don't, I've never experienced any, uh, you know, hypervitaminosis hyper, you know, hyper D or anything like that um, in, in all these years. But I think that the D actually helps... Um, with the absorption of, you know, the calcium into the bloodstream. Uh, And I don't think adult males necessarily need vitamin D supplementation very often, Uh, especially if you're using Dubia roaches or... uh, Basically, it just depends on what kind of feeders you're using. If you're using uh, worms of any kind... Uh, you got to under- people have to understand that these worms worms are larvae. They don't really l- l- gut load, you know, like a, like a, a, an adult insect will, like a, a an adult dubia, 
you know, something that's already fully developed. Because um, so it, it it doesn't. I'm not saying it doesn't matter with mealworms, but it's not as critical as it is uh, for proper supplementation of your um, you know your live feeders that uh, carry carry on whatever they've got stored up in their system. That's why it's called gut loading to the to the gecko. But I have been a, I've, I've used um, RepCal products for about 15 years, and I switched recently to uh, another product, and I I don't think I had I had good results for the first year or two, and then uh, something happened, and this year wasn't that great. I think we've kind of narrowed it down to getting a bad batch of uh, product, but um, but but. I did speak with Dr. Daniel Wentz, W-E-N-T-Z, and he is the formulating chemist uh, for RepCal products, which is actually local here in the, in, the south, in the south area of the San Francisco Bay. And I was picking his brain one time, and I was flapping my arms and my mouth and saying, look, I don't understand how there can be a one-size-fits-all um, supplementation for every reptile. It just doesn't work that way. Bearded dragons and and um, iguanas need to assimilate vitamin D through their skin. Where nocturnal species like you know uh, the Aussie geckos and leopard geckos don't. And so, what's up with that? And basically, what he told me is, and it was kind of I, I, sh- I shouldn't be name dropping, but that's <laughs> that's okay. But he but he just said, look, I really am supposed to tell you that. RepCal products are superior to all the other products because I'm their formulating, you know, their chief formulating chemist. And so, um, you know, I'm supposed to tell you that. He says, but in reality, we don't really know what proper uh, supplementation is for uh, species to species. He said, mm-hmm. so, uh, he just said that nocturnal species probably need vitamin D where diurnal species that are have the proper, you know, uh, uh, light uh, wavelengths, you know, the multi-spectrum uh, wavelengths to help them assimilate vitamin D through their skin, uh, don't necessarily need vitamin D. Um, he says, but it's more how the animal uh, metabolizes it. So yep. the example he, he the example he gave me is okay. All of us have had dogs or cats where we've switched, switched food. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, okay, you got a dog and your vet tells you it needs to go on a different diet. The, I mean, you know, we all know what happens, especially with cats, if we just automatically switch their food. Well, they get upset stomach, they get gas, they get diarrhea. It, you know, their their body is. It, it takes a while before their body starts to actually assimilate properly that you know that new food. He said so. The same thing would apply for any kind of supplementation for a reptile. That if you are going to switch, uh, if it's broke, don't fix it. But if you are going to switch, then you want to. Mix 50-50, for example, of the the one the supplement that they've been on with half of the new one, and eventually wean them off of it and get them back on to you know the newer pro- the product that you're going to be using, so that their body has a chance to learn how to um, process it and assimilate it. So I'm going back to RepCal products again because I've had uh, they are expensive, but 
I don't have quite the I don't have the inventory of animals that I used to have, so I think it's I think it's going to be my best bet back again. So okay, um, I agree with you, Marcia. Well, and I agree with everybody. Whatever your your product of choice is, um, go for it. Um, I like the reptile. I've been using reptile since I'm a kid, and I'm kind of just like I'm just attached to it. And I haven't. It's not like I haven't tried anything else. I really haven't. Um, incorporated anything else into my regimen and just, um, I don't know, I had great success. My geckos uh, speak for themselves and I've just been doing really well with them. But, um, okay, so now that we have, we have the basics down. We have our geckos, they're fat, they're, well, not, they're not fat, they're healthy, they're up to weight, they're up to size, they're ready for breeding. Now the questions that I get, and I'm sure you guys get them too, how do you, when your females are ovulating, What's the best way to um, get your breeding going? Now, is it better to introduce the male to the female's tub or the female's tank, or is it better to introduce the female to the males? And I'll give this one to John first. Go ahead, John. What do you think? Um, I think I think it's always best to introduce the male to the female um, tank, and I think most will agree on that. Um, for the most part, females... If the mating isn't successful, it's usually because of the the female. Um, usually they're not receptive. The males are kind of always ready to breed, so they don't really have a problem. So it's usually the females. And I always find it best to, to not introduce a female to a male's territory because she's going to be even more uncomfortable at that time. Um, it's better to put the male in with a female. And I think, I think most breeders do that. Um, but, I mean, you can have success either way. But that's typically how it goes, from what I understand. Okay. What are your thoughts, Matt? Uh, I always go uh, males get switched to the females' gauges. Okay. That's, I mean, do you guys, that's... yeah, do you guys ever, and, uh, well, go ahead, Marsha, and then I'll ask my next question. What do you usually do, Marsha? Well, I, I think it, it depends. Sometimes it just doesn't work out that way, but the majority of the time I do introduce the male to the female uh, into her habitat because she feels comfortable there. Um, if it's done the other way around, sometimes she's going to be overly intimidated uh, in, a new, uh, in, a, in a, you know, a new habitat, new smells, uh, even though they're all set up the same. Um, and then she's, you know, she's a permission giver, basically. <laughs> you know, she's the one that's going to give permission on whether or not, you know, breeding or copulation occurs. And so I think it uh, it helps to have the female on her own turf and then introduce the male because he's only going to be, you know, he's only going to be looking for one thing. That's it. He's not going to care if their smells are different because it smells good. And I, it, it just works out the best that way for me. To, to introduce the male mm -hmm. into the female's uh, habitat. Okay. All right. That, that's that's cool. Um, okay. Well, my next question was going to be along that along that thread, but um, all right. So if you well, what if uh, so? Say for instance, you have a group of three females, and one of them is ovulating, but the other two aren't, and you'd like to uh, make sure that that one female is. Um, fertilized by a male, but you don't want to introduce the male to that tub because what if the male starts going after the females that aren't ovulating? So in that kind of an instance, is it okay to introduce the female into the male tub? 
and just remove and put her back with the other females the next day. Is this is this uh, pointed towards anybody? Uh, uh, I'll give it to you, Marsha, first, and then then the guys can okay. go. Okay. Yeah, I think it's okay to do that. But okay. but you got to keep in mind too that males are very persistent during you know during um, breeding season, and the females that are not receptive can beat him up. I mean, they will just. Uh, they can actually cause injury, if the, and the male will just pretty much focus on the female that is ovulating. Because, you know, housing animals like that in groups, which I used to do, and I still do, like with my bandits and, you know, other species that are in the milii. But, yeah, I, you know, it, it, sure, that's okay. That's okay. But another option would be just to set up another temporary breeding tub or something to put them both in. So they're both starting out on neutral ground. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you guys think? Matt, what do you think about that? Uh, in, in most of my groups of females, uh, both females are always ovulating. So um, together. Uh, usually once one smells it, the other one starts ovulating as well. Um, so I've, I've never really had a problem with that. I always move the male to the female. I never put the female in the male cage. He, he, he usually has a bachelor pad and it's not set up for that kind of thing. So... Uh, um, I usually you usually move the male to the you know much prettier interior of the female. <laughs> okay. What about you, John? Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty much the same. If I have a if I mean for the if if you have a group of females and one female's ovulating and the others aren't, I would say either remove that female or you can throw the male in. I mean, for the most part, they'll be fine or the other females will start ovulating too if they're up to size and everything as well. I think in a group setting, I don't see as many problems as fight, with the fighting, um, especially in a larger tub like a 32 quart like that. So I think okay. it's fine to okay. throw them in either way. I mean, I've done it a few okay. times and it's never never had a problem with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have your female. She's... Okay, wait a second. We're at the halfway point. Let me take a quick break, and um, we'll continue our discussion when we get right back. All right, everybody, hang tight. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more. And all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com. Or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types. From white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com. And on Facebook, abdragons.com is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches. Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps, abdragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt Reptile Heat Tape, 
and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. Razor Sharp Reptiles. Like the name suggests, Jamie Carnes has some sharp gecko and snake projects in the works. He is very well known for his work with rare species, such as cave geckos, but also has some of the prettiest radar projects I've ever seen. Razor Sharp Reptiles is also known for high-end fantails and beautiful rainwater leopard gecko morph projects. Check out RazorSharpReptiles.com online and on Facebook. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms 2 ent.weebly.com or it can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. Okay, everybody, we are back. I just want to mention a couple things real quick before we get back into our discussion. Um, sea Serpents and Hotbox Incubators are one company now and they are offering a special discount to Gecko Nation radio listeners from tonight until Sunday the 22nd, I believe. You just check that real quick. Yep, Sunday the 22nd. So if you guys need a rack or an incubator of the highest quality, go to www.seaserpents.com. It's spelled C as in cat, S-E-P-E-N-T-S.com. Or, and also when you get when you get there and you figure out what you want, email Chris at seaserpents.com and mention Gecko Nation Radio for the discount. The discount will be different on uh, certain products based on pricing and whatnot. So you'll have to check exactly what it's going to uh, be, but uh, it's very gracious of him to do that for us. So um, definitely take advantage, guys. Also, I want to ma- remind everyone that uh, Gecko Nation Radio and Herpentine Radio are partners uh, now as far as promoting each other. So um, definitely check out uh, Herpentine Radio if you want a, more of a broader-based uh, type of... My dog is coughing up a lung here. Um, broader-based uh, herp, herp discussions that basically cover all different types of topics. All right. So we left off uh, before the break with basically... Now we have our females. We have the breeding down. We have our pairing down. And... Um, we basically want to go from here. Now, the next step in this process is going to be uh, egg laying. So our females are fertilized. I'm going to start with uh, Matt on this one. Uh, Once our females are fertilized, when do we start seeing good eggs or or any eggs at that point? Uh, I would say usually from anywhere from like 10 to 14 days typically um, is is what I see after... uh, after I put the male in, and then it's usually, uh, it can range anywhere from like 12 to 16 days uh, after that is the next clutch, um, depending on the female, uh, with, with the average being about 14 days. Okay, and do you notice, um, I know some people have experienced the first clutches uh, being duds. Um, Marcia, would you have, do you have experience with that? Oh, sure I do. <laughs> 
Um, I think that uh, even with even with seasoned breeders, uh, females uh, occasionally you'll get a first clutch of eggs uh, that are not fertile. I think that it has to do with how long you wait between the time that you observe for, uh, ovulation and the female is actually bred, because sometimes that first set of ovum are past the point of fertilization, so they may develop into eggs and, that are not fertile. And it also is not uncommon for first-time breeder females. Uh, it can be two or three clutches um, sometimes before uh, you, you'll get a fertile clutch of eggs. So, I mean, that's my experience is, uh, I mean, and that's the, you know, the exception and not the rule uh, that, you know, I've had some very healthy uh, first-time females lay, uh, you know, good fertile clutches right off the get-go and every two to three weeks after that. So I think it depends on the female how, you know, how conditioned she is. And we've already talked about some of the ways that we condition our females for breeding. I mean, if they have good weight and they have good uh, fat reserves, uh, they're going to bounce back real well between clutches and, you know, but it's nothing to worry about if the first two and even sometimes three uh, clutches that are laid are not viable eggs. Okay. How about you, John? Would you like to add to that? Uh, yeah, I agree with everything said. I, I think it's just a highly variable, and you just never, you really never know what's going to happen. Sometimes they, you know, you can breed a breed a female, and the first clutch comes out as duds, and then they start laying fertiles, and or sometimes it's just they keep laying in fertiles, and no matter what you do, how many times you throw the male in there, it just never happens. So. I think it just it just varies, you know. There's no way to completely predict it. There are yeah. averages, but it's just it's so so hard to predict that you know. <laughs> That's why I, you'll get one project, you'll have too many babies one year, and not get anything from what you really wanted, and that's just the way it goes, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just okay. It's really, um, really variable. Yeah. Okay, everybody. I'm gonna open up uh, the phone lines. So if you guys have a specific question related to breeding or incubation, um, this will be your chance to call in. Um, before we start talking about incubation, guys, I, uh, I'll direct this question at Matt. Matt, suppose you have a female and she's laying great eggs, and um, do you notice that she's getting, she's starting to thin out and maybe not hold as much weight, and you want to basically stop the egg production. Uh, is there a way to do that? Is there a way to perhaps uh, get her to stop laying eggs? Yeah, you know, when uh, basically, <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, basically, when uh, I, I only breed the, uh, uh, you know, put the male in once, and then once, you know, the basically all the the sperm reserves are, um, you know, used up. Um, basically, she kind of stops on her own. That kind of uh, helps with, uh, you know, having her not produce as many. Uh, eggs as well, um, so she doesn't mm-hmm. get to that get to that point. Okay, uh, John, would you like to answer that? Uh, no, it's pretty much pretty much exactly the same. Okay, how about you, Marsha? Anything? Well, um, okay, 
Remind me, of, remind me of what the question was because I want to try to stay on topic because I have a tendency to wander <laughs> off. Okay, the question basically was like, say you have a female and um, she's been laying great eggs for you for the, for the season. Maybe she's, you know, three or four clutches deep. And um, basically she's at, you notice that she's not really holding her weight as well. Okay, um, yeah, she's not bouncing back between clutches or losing weight. Yeah. Um, Can you slow that egg production well, down? Well, anyway? uh, you know, I think that that is something to be expected. Um, I don't. I have very few females that, at the end of their egging season, weigh as much or look as good as they did at the beginning of the season. Not. To, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I've got some great females that are just, you know, they're just uh, ready. You know, they're just you know, perfect breeder females. But as a general rule, the more clutches they lay and the more often they're laid, the less time that the female has to reset or catch up or uh, bounce back between the clutches. Um, To get them to stop, uh, you know, the only thing that I can come up with would be cooling them, but on the on the flip side of that, if you cool them, then they're not going to eat, and you want them to eat. So it's a double-edged sword. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that if you have a female that does not go into starting into breeding season in optimum health with, with a, you know, and I, I, I like to see my girls nice and fat. I mean, o- almost borderline overweight before season starts. And the, these are the ones that... Uh, not the males. I don't like them to be fat because I think it, imp- it impedes on their ability to breed. But, but yeah, to get them to stop, um, I've had on occasion, and, that, and this also includes males. I've had males go off food during breeding season because they're so stressed out and all they want to do is breed. If that's the case, then I will actually remove them from, uh, especially the females, from the from my from my you know little facility and. Put them somewhere else uh, where they're not going to be smelling all of those uh, pheromones, and I'll keep them kind of in a shady spot, and usually they'll shut down. But I can't lie to you. I can't lie to you. I have lost females uh, over these last 18 years to uh, laying eggs. I had one leopard gecko female, and now this is not, not common. Uh, but for a lot of the beginners out there that are just now, you know, ex- you know, experiencing breeding for the first time or thinking about it or whatever, it is not without its issues. But I had a female that laid 17 clutches of eggs wow. in one season, and she died. She wow. literally 17. 17 clutches of eggs and nothing I could do, nothing I could do would get her to stop laying eggs. And wow. laying fertile eggs are just as strenuous as laying infer- infertile eggs. So um, I did lose I did lose a female one time that she just literally wasted. And so I think at that point I was brokenhearted, of course. And and you know I it, but it really does get you to start thinking and in focus and being more in tune with each of your animals. But just like uh, Matt and John have both said. Uh, it really just depends on each individual gecko, and you have to know your geckos. You have to know what they tend to, what what their tendencies are, and um, so. But I would say getting them out, 
getting them out of a uh, uh, breeding environment where there are male and female pheromones uh, raging in whatever you know area they are, and maybe keeping them a few degrees cooler and a little bit darker will kind of throw them into, okay, it's the end of breeding season. But you don't want to cool them completely because that will prevent them from eating, and that just adds to the adds to the you know, the tragedy that is potential when it gets to that point. Right. Okay. All right. We have some callers on the line. I'm going to take uh, the one that's been on the longest here. Caller from the 347 area code. You are live on Gecko Nation Radio. Boom. Okay. Um, wow. Let me try that, that one more time. <laughs> yeah, let me try that one more time. No, we're not going to do that one. All right, caller from the 231 area code. You are live on Gecko Nation Radio. Go ahead, caller. Uh, Hello, this is Josh. Who? Uh, Josh. Okay, I can't hear you too good. Can you speak up a little bit? Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? Uh, A little better. Yep, go ahead. What's your question tonight? Um, I had a question about one of my females. Actually, after um, laying eggs, she did become very underweight. How would you actually recommend um, safely getting her back up to uh, proper weight? Okay, good question. I'm going to put you on hold. You can listen in, and we'll we'll answer that question for you. Thanks for calling. No problem. All right, so we have a female. She's... Uh, she's lost a lot of weight during her egg-laying season. What's the best way to get her boosted back up? I'll give this one to, uh, let's see, who didn't we hear from in a while? John. I'll give this one to you, John, first. Um, well, I, th- I think during the egg-laying season, that's one of the struggles you have is that you got to always <clears throat> be feeding your females pretty much as much as possible. Um, I'm, a really, I'm really against overfeeding your geckos in general, but one time that you really do need to feed them a lot is when you have females that are laying eggs because they need to have the vitamins and they need to have the calcium and they need to have the, the food and, you know, protein to, to, to build more eggs, you know. I mean, it's a lot of, it's, it's a lot of strain on a female. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I've seen females, you know, females can go to two clutches of eggs without really eating. But, I mean, if you take a healthy fat gecko and, she lays two clutches of eggs without you having anything to eat. She's basically down to skin and bones after that. So you literally got to be on it. You know, make sure when my females are laying eggs, I have I have a, a big bowl of roaches and and uh, superworms always available at that time. And I like to use superworms. I think it packs on a little bit more weight um, at a quicker time frame. And usually in the off season, I use roaches. You know, without without the worms, but um, I just think just having the food always available at that time is important, you know, and especially having food that actually moves around. Sometimes if you throw mealworms in there, they'll they'll kind of stop moving after a day or, day or two. So <laughs> if that's what you're feeding, then you need to make sure that you're on it every couple of days. But um, you know, and did any of you guys if, get if you have a problem female, you know, throw throw some, you know, try some wax worms. You know, can help to build up weight. Um, if you if you see one really going downhill and really skinny, um, you can hand feed 
I like to hand feed uh, freshly molted dubia. I think they're the best oh, hand yeah. feeding bug there is. You know, just a really soft, freshly molted dubia, and there's pretty much nothing. You know, no gecko will deny that. So, I mean, with my, you know, like some of the geckos that I have to hand feed, like the Taylor Rye that I have, um, that's one of the only things I can get them to hand feed on. You know, so. Um, just using a really freshly molted dubia works just works good. Blast worms are okay, but yeah, and, um, whatever you have to do to get the weight on. And what about you, Matt? Do you have any tricks for that? Uh, putting weight back on the females. Um, I mean, basically, as long as they still have their feeding response, um, they're, they're definitely still uh, good. Good point. Be good point. Um, once they once they lose that feeding response, then you, then you're you're really behind the eight ball. Um, I mean, I would say that in order of how easily they would take things, you're, you're probably looking at uh, crickets is probably the easiest. I would say lateralis is the next one, uh, then dubia, supers, and and millworms. Um, so if it, what I would do is like start like get the, you know, millworm superworms, try to get them eating on those. Um, if, if they want me on that, you need something that moves a little bit more. I would go to dubia. Um, if they're not eating on the dubia, then kind of go to the lateralis or, or crickets, um, you know, and then kind of once they start eating on one, get a few meals into them and then move back up the, back up the chain so that you're back to millworms again. Um, and just because that's, you know, typically that's what most people use as their staple diet for their animals and then kind of feed the other stuff as, uh, um, as either treats, um, or, I mean, you know, some people like, uh, uh, like John will actually, you know, feed his like supers and, and, uh, uh, the roaches all year round, um, which is definitely, you know, I, I would say that that's definitely a very good food source as well. Um, uh, for for all year round, um, but the uh, yeah, I, I, w- I would try crickets if if the if the animal's not eating. Usually that'll that'll kind of put some spunk into them, um, and the the lateralis just because they move really quickly. Okay, uh, Marsha, do you have anything to add? All right, am I am I online? I mean on on the air. Okay, good. Yes, you are. Um, You're well, be on the air the whole show. Oh. All right. Well, sometimes I put it on I put it on mute, and I can't remember if I'm muted or not muted. But <laughs> I probably need to be muted more often. But uh, <laughs> sorry. But anyway, yeah, I agree with both uh, Matt and John. But uh, you know, there there's always that percentage of females that. Okay, let me let me stop and backtrack. Generally speaking, the females will go off of food for several days before they lay their eggs. That's very common, mm-hmm. and actually that's a flag that goes up and says that they're getting ready to lay their eggs. That and, you know, incessantly digging in their lay box. But uh, generally after they've laid their eggs and, and within 24 hours, they are ravenous. They are so hungry that they just, you can just see them like vibrating with excitement to, you know, to eat because mm-hmm. uh, they've been off food and they just laid a clutch of eggs, which has pretty much depleted their body of protein uh, for the yolk and calcium for the, for, the, uh, uh, for the shell. They're hungry. But sometimes mm-hmm. there are females that just 
that's it. They don't, they lay a clutch of eggs, and no matter what you do, they're not, they don't want to eat. What and, about picking mice, Marshall? Well, and that, I was just, thank you for mentioning that, David, because um, I have used pinky mice, especially the smallest you can find, in, in some cases to, the, the, the main thing is not really what you're feeding them, it's what you can do to get them to eat, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. So you don't want to, you know, uh, granted it's kind of a difficult thing if you start feeding them wax worms, they, you know, they do, get, they do get spoiled. They flat do, but you know what? If you've got an animal, especially a female, who's in jeopardy, of, you know, her, who's, you know whose uh, health is compromised, it doesn't matter what you feed them. You just no. need to get nutrition in them and hopefully get their, uh, get their feeding response back up again. And I agree with what John and, uh, you know, and Matt said about something that moves around. I mean... You know, any gecko can belly up to a bowl, right? I mean, there's a bowl full of stuff, and they can belly up to it and just sit there and eat, okay? But uh, I think that um, something that moves around like a cricket or a lateralis or even a dubia, because they're pretty fast too, um, will catch their eye. And what, what you want to do is reinstill their feeding response. But there are times that that just doesn't happen either. It just doesn't. Mm-hmm. And those are the times when you start worrying, because uh, yeah. then usually by that time they're two weeks into their next clutch they're going to lay. And mm-hmm. I think that these are some things that novices don't really appreciate or understand. And I'm not saying that anybody's stupid or anything like that. I'm just saying that there is just so much more to breeding than you think there is. It's, it's not just throwing two animals together and, you know, having these eggs. It, it is not. Breeding geckos is not without its issues. And getting these, keeping these females healthy through the breeding season, uh, to me, is more important than how many fertile eggs I've got or how many eggs hatch. Right. Seriously. But that's, but that's just me. Um, I do mm-hmm. use my slurry on occasion. Uh, when I think that there's a gecko that is, you know, borderline uh, leaning back and forth between, you know, life and death, I'll intervene. I, I'll do whatever I need to do. But for me, the best thing, and, I, I, and I'll repeat what I said earlier in the show, is to remove them, get them out of that room. Mm-hmm. Get them out. Yep. They don't need to smell the males. They don't need to smell all of ovulating females they're in a in a in a place where you know there aren't any smells other than her own uh you might want to adjust the uh you know the lighting uh if they're got some weight on them then you do want to semi-cool them but you know what that that could kill them too Mm -hmm. by trying to simulate cooling on on a female whose you know health is compromised is compromised, it will kill her. Okay? I hope this and, doesn't happen to too many new people because it can definitely discourage uh, people from ever breeding again if they have this kind of a first experience. Well, I hope I'm not being discouraging. No, but I, I mean, it happens. I mean, discouraging. But yeah, I'm going to flat. I'm going to straight up tell people that this is the side of breeding geckos 
that doesn't always get discussed or talked about, and it certainly is something that you need to understand, be aware of, uh, before you start breeding your animals, that this could happen. And, and of course, the more animals you have, the more chances you're going to have of something like this happening. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it, it... to me, it boils down to making sure, uh, like what we talked about in the first hour of this show, is you know making sure that your females are old enough, that they have enough weight on them and a, and a good fat reserve in their tail, and that they're you know ready to breed. Because chances are, those females will get through the breeding season just fine. It is ex- yep. it is expected for them to lose weight. They are going to lose weight, and usually okay. once they lay an egg, lay their eggs, they're hungry. But if, if there's that one in a hundred that just doesn't doesn't want to thrive, you know, know. And, and it could and, it could be a genetics yeah. thing too, right, Marcia? I you know like, what? I, I, it's very possible. Matt Matt's more of the genetics guy than I am. I I'm more of the intuitive. Uh, been doing this for 18 years kind of person where Matt is probably, Matt and John both are probably more uh, capable and of, of answering genetics type tendency questions. Okay. Well, we got a bunch of callers on the line, so I want to spend the last, uh, or the next half hour of the show, uh, you guys, we can do this show for as long as you guys want. I think we should cover the incubation part now um, and, and go from there. Uh, let's take one more call, though. We have callers on the line. I have a bunch of them here. I'm going to take, let's see, who's been on the longest? Um, caller from the 816 area code. You are live on Gecko Nation Radio. Caller, are you there? Okay, we'll take the next one. Um, let's see, caller from 570. I think this is a listener, but um, I'm going to take your call. Let's see. Five seven zero. You're live on Gecko Nation Radio. Hi guys. <laughs> it's hey, Amanda. Amanda. How are Hi, you? Amanda. Hi, I am hey, awesome. Re- I'm hey, Andy, hold on one second. To... Okay. Hold on one second, everyone. I have a quick question. Does anybody get the name of the first caller by any chance? Did you hear what their name was? I couldn't tell. I couldn't hear it clearly. No, I don't. No, you know what? I didn't either. Okay. No big deal. I got their number written down. Go ahead, Marcy. I mean, uh, Mandy. <laughs> Thinking of Marcy okay. from MS2. <laughs> I am actually cleaning my bins right now listening to the show. So, <laughs> Good thing to do oh, while you're do doing cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, getting some new calcium in for my girls. <laughs> but um, I actually had... Um, a question about incubation. Um, when it comes to when it comes time to decide what temperature to put them at, what what sort of um, things do you consider in deciding whether you're going to make the boys or the girls? What what do you consider when deciding what for ratios you want to have? Okay. That's a question. Let, um, I, I don't know how many boys yeah. and girls I should make. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good question. Okay. John, John, why don't you take this one? Um, well, it is a good question, and it does vary quite a bit. Um, 
for the most part, you're going to probably want to produce more females, um, as those right. are probably going to be easier to sell for a lot of people. You know, people can keep them in groups. Um, typically, people want more females than they do males if they're doing breeding as well. So, as a general rule, um, breeding more fe- more for females is usually usually the goal. Um, there are certain projects where, uh, in my my particular incubation, the way I incubate, um, if I incubate for a female, it's pretty much 99% sure it's going to be a female. But if I incubate for a male, it's it's probably 80 to 90% going to be a male. So it's not as great of odds. So I kind of keep that in mind as well when I'm incubating. But um, I, there's certain projects where you know that you're maybe you're trying to genetically test something out where you need to have you need to produce a bunch of females and right. to be back to the father maybe to to test something out. That could be a case where you incubate all for female. Um, sometimes some years I, I produce a lot of one way or the other, maybe I'll produce too many males or, you know, for instance, this year, I didn't mean to do this, but I produced a lot of Afghans, but I only produced one, one male this entire year. And, yeah. That's, you know, that was, that was common. The plan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, last year I produced a ton of them and, you know, I, this year I, I planned to, to I, I know I incubated more for male. I, I keep this, I keep a card on every, on every tub. So I know that I incubated more for male. So, Maybe the ones I incubated for male, and, you know, maybe they died in the egg. Um, that could be the case. Right. Or maybe, you know, for whatever reason they didn't hatch. Or I know my first, the first one that came out came out male, and the sibling came out female. And then the, the next group of males that I had that was growing up ended up being two females. So all of a sudden I had a ratio that ended up being pretty much all females for the year, which is unfortunate because when I sell these, I usually sell them. And most people want a pair or they want a trio or something like that. So um, so next year I'll probably incubate more for male. So that's maybe a decision, you know, that I'll go in the in the future with. You know, and you do that a lot. There will be certain projects where you're, you're going to get really male or female heavy one year before. And you might want to switch that up. Um, sometimes you're trying to, to hit that one gecko that's going to give you the – the the gecko that you want for the next year, you know, I was trying to get a a white and yellow raptor this year, and I didn't have I had a I had a white and yellow eclipse het raptor male, and I had some raptor females and some other stuff, but you know, with the odds and everything, I incubated a lot for male, probably more than I would, but I wanted to get that one gecko that you know I could use in the future rather than having to use in hets anymore, so. There's, there's a lot of deciding factors. You just, I mean, it's the whole fun of planning it out and the projects that you you breed. I actually, I keep a notepad in my in my phone, and I, anytime I think of something that I want to breed or create, or I get an idea for breeding, because sometimes when you're when you're you get a female that ovulates and you're putting males together, maybe you're not coming up with the best idea for that that pairing. You know, you kind of come up with it on the spot. So right, I'll. I'll I'll actually put notes in my my phone, you know, of what I want to create or what I want to pair up with, and I'll be sitting there cleaning a hundred cages or you know a couple hundred cages and or or tubs and kind of get this enlightenment like idea that I'm gonna do this or that, you know, maybe get spawned from like seeing a baby that's cool or something, you know. There's all these ideas that pop in your head out of nowhere, <laughs> and the more the more you live and breathe this stuff, it. it you know, it becomes your life. You literally, breathe, you re- literally are dreaming about it and all kinds of stuff. So, mm-hmm. 
when you get those ideas, it's good to put it down on either a notepad or, you know, in my case, uh, my phone. I put a note in my phone, and um, that's a good way to keep notes on breeding or what you want to do. So that way um, I look back at that notepad, so by the time it's breeding season, I already know, like, I really have a good idea of, like, some of the ideas that I came up with. And, and the possibilities are pretty much endless, so. But you know that 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 also affects what, what you know what females you have to breed and what males you have to breed as adults. You might have a really awesome raptor male or something that you you have at your in your collection, for instance. And maybe you you want to produce a lot of females to go with them. You might want to do that, you know. Or if you don't have a really nice male, you might want to incubate all for male for that one gecko that's going to really put your projects you know over the top. Um, so. Yeah, I think I think half of it's partly sales and what you're going to be able to sell for the next year, and then also mm-hmm. half of it's what you you need for your own projects. Right. Going right. So. Right. Okay. Thank right, you. Cool, Mandy. Does that answer your question? Yes, I actually had another incubation question if I have time, but <laughs> yeah, go ahead, and then I'll and I'll take the next caller. Okay. Um, I. I I actually had another question with, um, like, I have a lot of albinos, and trying to incubate at a higher temperature um, for more brightly colored females, I was wondering the best way to go about doing that in, like, starting them out for the first so many weeks incubated for female and then raising the temperatures. I didn't know in what, like, how quickly do you raise your temperature? What's the process in doing that? to safely not, like, kill the eggs in such a quick, you know what I mean, not, not okay. killing them. We're definitely going to, that's like definitely a topic for tonight. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, Mandy, that's definitely a topic for tonight, and uh, we're going to get right into that. I just want to take this other call, because he's been on hold for a long time, and uh, okay. I'll make sure. Awesome. Hey, Dave. Um, yeah, go ahead, John, what's up? Uh, the first caller just messaged me on Facebook. His name is Joshua. Josh. Okay. Cool. Okay. All right. Um, all right, Mandy. I'll let you go. Thanks for your question. Yep. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mandy. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Chris. Uh, here you are. You've been on a while. You're live on Gecko Nation Radio. Hello. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> Uh, what's your question tonight? Uh, first of all, hi, Marsha. That's for me. Um, <laughs> Krista! Hi! <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> Krista works... Well, Krista works for slash with me. Oh, okay. And she's a paid... Oh. Krista is a paid employee, not... I'm <laughs> just kidding. Oh, We've heard about her when she comes and helps you when you go away, right? Oh, I wouldn't be able to go away if it weren't for her. Yes, you're right. This is Krista, but I don't want to, I don't want to uh, like storm your uh, parade here. So it's okay. I'll shut up. No, that's okay. No, it's okay. Recently branched off though, um, and so that's my question: is this is my first year breeding away from Marsha, and I have two females currently that decided that it's breeding season already. And um, one of them is one of Marsha's proven breeders that I, um, I I got off of her. And she was off food for a 
good amount of time, and then she finally laid a slug. So Marcia said that I should put a male in with her. And after keeping a male in with her twice for four days each, um, I separated them. She's still not eating, and uh, I don't even see follicles anymore. And I was wondering what I could do to possibly encourage her to either eat or um, I'm not even sure, to be honest, that they locked up either time that they were put together. Okay. So, okay, is this a question for me or for the other two reputable Go breeders, ahead, Marcia. at least? In, in ahead, general, um, I mean, Marcia, well, you know. Well, I know the female she's talking about, and she doesn't miss many meals. And she's uh, missed a lot. She's gone down from probably 78, 80 grams down to about mm, 65, 70, or 65 to 70. And she still has not produced uh, a viable eggs or... or I don't, um, I currently don't even see um, any follicles. Any follicles? No, and she's still not eating, and I do not think that she has locked up with my male either time. Mm, okay. she's, got some, she's got a few little battle wounds on her tail, which means that he definitely tried, but, you know, not to sound weird, but as Harper's, you know, it's kind of what we do. I've sat and watched for hours at a time, and nothing happens. She avoids him at all costs. And so now I'm just getting concerned. Um, you were talking earlier about possibly just separating her from the back altogether. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something I should start thinking about doing? Well, okay, um, this is kind of a closed conversation because the rest of the listeners and the other two uh, breeders aren't savvy to the history of this uh, particular female. Uh, so in case it happens to anybody else, I mean, well, exactly. Of no, it's definitely something worthwhile talking about. Okay. Uh, this gal, uh, she's one of the kind of geckos that just gets fat like Jabba the Hutt uh, before breeding season. I mean, she's, and she doesn't get fed any more or less than anybody else. But no. she <laughs> is, you know, she's, she, her, she's huge. She just gets huge. Uh, and But the thing is that um, if she's lost... In my opinion, if a gecko loses a minimum of 10% of their body weight, then I, I put a tag on their, on, you know, on their tub. You know what I do, Krista. But, but the thing is that um, if she's laying slugs, there's just as much taxation on her system, her body, and everything else laying slugs as there is you know, uh, fertile eggs. So the problem is getting her to lay fertile eggs. And if she's not receptive to breeding. She's only laid, laid that one slug. That's it. Okay. One and you don't see I, any ovulation at all? No. And, you know, I, I know I've had trouble in the past identifying it, but another one of my females is very clearly ovulating. So I, I know yeah, what I'm looking for. Yeah, you've seen enough ovulation over here at, uh, at Golden Gate Geckos to know what to look for. So, um, you know what? Uh, I, in a case like this, I would probably separate her. Uh, okay. She's not she's not a young breeder anymore, although she is perfectly capable of laying really, you know, beautiful clutches. She's not a second or third year uh breeder. Uh so uh, if you can get her just get her away from the male, bump up her heat a little bit. Uh you know, if you can if you can manipulate the light 
to be more than 12 hours in the dark. Hopefully, you know, she'll be, you know, interested in food. Because uh, I've offered I, her uh, just about anything. Um, mealworms, waxworms, superworms, dubia, um, pinkies, uh, baby food, food. <laughs> yeah. Any, any yeah. of my last resorts, and she's not interested in anything. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, Krista, I mean, I would separate her uh, from the male or in the proximity of the male or any other ovulating females. And then I'll tell you what, why don't you and I talk about this offline here and we'll see if we can't come up with a plan. Uh, I don't know that there's any information that I could give other listeners that would, you know, that would be uh, viable uh, but you know me, I, I do, I, I'm willing to try a lot of different unorthodox type, uh, you know, type things. I, I'm not saying that they're harmful in any way, but, um, if we need to just, well, let me just jump in for room. a second here. Marshall, let me jump in for a second. Uh, you sure. know, this is a good, Please. this is actually <laughs> a good example of how, um, there's going to be, there's always going to be these very specific type of situations that are going to arise for breeders, and absolutely, um, they're going to be unique. And um, you know, we can give you as much information tonight as possible on you know basically you know how things would go in an ideal way. But these these geckos will throw you for a loop. Um, I definitely want okay. to hit on the um, question that Mandy brought up about the incubation. So let's move to that. But um, okay, Krista, Chris, you, well, let's talk. You. And I and it's not saying that, you know, what this discussion is, is uh, not going to be worthwhile for other listeners, because I think it would be. I think it would be a oh, very no, no, good no. topic totally, of discussion. I totally understand. But yeah, I mean, just the guy, the fact that you guys touched on even just removing her from the mm-hmm. rack from not only the male, but the other ovulating female. Yes. I mean that's that's helpful to me in and of itself. It's it, it's all awesome. about the pheromones, girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> but well, thank you guys for having I'm not me on. dissing you, Krista. I'm not dissing you at no, all. At you all. know that I'm not. And uh, so I'm not uh, w- <laughs> No, I know you're not. But uh, let we we've only got like 15 or 20 minutes left of the show. So um, that's fine. Thank you guys for having me on. Actually, I'm really excited. All right, Chris. Thanks. Well, I'm glad you got on, Krista, honey. We'll, I'll, we'll talk. We'll talk, okay? Okay. All right, sweetheart. All right. Um, and, and you know what? This is a perfect example of when you buy an animal from a breeder, make sure you're buying it for, from someone uh, that is respectable that will take the time to help you with these very specific things. Listen, and, you're uh, not going to – David, you're right. You, you, nobody's going to get – from Petco or PetSmart, and and uh, you can you can like bleep me out for saying those two names, <laughs> I but you're bleep, not going to get bleep. from them that you're going to get from a breeder like John or Matt or myself, as far I as know. the one-on-one. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. And this question I'm going to let Matt tackle because I think he's got a lot of experience with this particular topic. Matt. Um, Mandy brought up a really good thing, good point about incubation and temperatures. And um, I believe it was Ron Tremper that discovered if you want to make really colorful albino females, that it's not always a good idea to incubate them for the entire 90 days or whatever it is, uh, whatever a lot of people do. 
um, in, in a lower temp, you want to do a specific type of uh, special type of incubation process. Would you mind going into those, uh, going into that for us? Matt, I'm going to butt in and then I'm going to shut up. I promise. <laughs> okay. No, it was not Ron Trimper who came up with that yeah. method of incubation. Okay. Absolutely not. It was not Ron <laughs> Trimper. It was the labs of David Cruz at, at in Texas at the uh, at you know Texas A and M. And and if okay. anybody would like to email me, I can provide all the links necessary. That they are the ones that did the study. Ron borrowed it. And okay, well, all right. All right, I'm shutting up now. <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. Uh, all right. Well, well, first off, um, it's you're not really messing with the color per se. You're, you're definitely messing with the dark pigmentation and the and the white pigmentation, but you're not messing with like the orange or anything like that. So any of the orange coloration is not going to be affected by the um, by the, the change in or the, the different temperature incubation. Let's put it that way. Um, basically, anything on an albino, and actually just in, in the Tremper albino, um, that you see as being, uh, as a baby, is, is white or is, like, see-through, that is the areas on the animal that can be affected by the different, uh, the different temperature incubations. Um, whenever it's incubated at a darker temperature, those areas will be a, a darker color, basically. Um, so it, it really does not affect the color of, um, you know, like say a super hypotangerine or any other lime bread animal. Um, it is literally just the, um, how much brown pigmentation will be on a Tremper albino. Um, like I, I really haven't even seen it in bells or rainwaters that much either. Um, so I don't even group those guys in, in the same category. It's it's typically just on the Tremper albino. Um, mm-hmm. As far as, you know, time frames, stuff like that, it's it's definitely one of those things that it's in the last couple weeks of incubation. That's whenever all the color um, is actually, uh, you know, pretty much produced in the animal. Um, the, the sex is determined... Um, they, they say within the first 14 days, but just to be sure, I would, I would keep them in there for like 21 days. Um, and then really what I've done um, in the past is uh, we'll, we'll start off at like an 80-degree incubator and go up about 2 degrees uh, every week, basically. Um, sometimes it's a little bit quicker. Sometimes it's a little bit longer. Um, basically, what I do is I, I just sneak them through a bunch of ovibator incubators and um, whenever they get to the last ones is usually whenever they hatch. Um, but that also depends on, you know, where, where I'm at in the breeding season and stuff like that. If it's the very beginning of the breeding season, you know, some might only get to the, you know, 85, 86-degree incubator because there's just not enough eggs behind them to, to move them along. Um, but mm-hmm. with, with that being said, um, usually as long as they're incubated above, I would say like 85, 86, they're not going to have much of that dark pigmentation anyway. Um, typically, whenever you see the dark pigmentation on the albinos, it's whenever they are incubated at like around like 80, 82 degrees. Because um, even at like 83, 84, you're still not going to see that much uh, dark pigmentation. Um, and it's not just 
during the egg incubation uh, when you can get that dark pigmentation. It's also after the animal is hatched as well. Um, and that's one of those things that a lot of people don't, uh, uh, you know, either don't know or don't understand as well. If, if the, the bottom of your rack is cooler than the, the top of your rack, uh, the, the albinos in the bottom would actually be a darker color. Pigmentation would come out more than if they were in the top of the rack. Um, and that's just by um, basically, be, basically being kept at a, a slightly lower temperature as well. Um, so that's also another very important thing that if, if you are breeding like tripper albinos um, to, to keep the babies warm as well because once the babies uh, get a little bit cool, um, it can actually darken them up and then that dark color will actually stay forever. Um, mm -hmm. sometimes, uh, sometimes people like that little bit of darker pigmentation to them. Um, I've actually seen some people actually market them as something totally different. Um, but at the end of the day, they're just tremper albino, just the, the, the low incubation tremper, basically, or a dookie, some people call them, or like, a, you know, a brown tremper, or, you know, whatever. Um, but chocolate. Uh, uh, yeah, chocolate as well, that's another one. Um, but it's it, at the end of the day, it's still a, a tremper albino, and it's uh, one of those things that if you hatch babies out of it and they hatch out of it a higher incubation, uh, you're not going to have chocolates anymore. You're going to have white chocolate. That's basically what you're going to have. So, um, okay. And so, and but I mean, just to uh, uh, just to reiterate, does not have an effect on you know, like you know, like line bird things, like uh, like tangerine, uh, carrot tail, carrot head. Um, it does not have effect on any of that stuff. There, there are a lot of people that say that, you know, people cook for color and stuff like that, and it's, you can't cook for color. That's, that's just pure genetic, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know. It is uh, now, yeah. He's right. It's, uh, it, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, there, there's certain colors in animals that can be manipulated by the, uh, manipulated by the low incubation temps or the, the temperature at which you're keeping the animal, and that's usually the melanin. So, um, you know, anything that produces, like, orange or yellow pigmentation has nothing to do with the melanin. And the melanin well, yeah, is basically... Because, because uh, mm -hmm. albinos do not have melanin in their skin. So it doesn't, it doesn't apply to, you know, um, the albinos. So then what exactly is happening then when, when they do brown out or get that chocolate look? If it's not actual melanin um, that's taking over, is it like, what would you call it? it? It's pigment. There's a difference between pigment and melanin. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I think that that's what, what uh, Matt's trying to get at. Is True, Matt? Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that what you're trying to say is that it's not a matter of you know the 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 intrinsic color or co value of the animal that is affected uh as much as it is the darker pigment but there's a difference between pigment and melanin what do you uh, have to say about this john um i pretty much agree with with what Matt's saying about it, I don't think mm -hmm. I think the actual just the dark pigments really what's affected. Because anytime you see a gecko that's kept really cold, you'll see like the darker parts, those black spots and stuff. They usually get darker first. 
So, I mean, that kind of gives you a hint to what's what's really going to, you know, be darker on the animal from, from actually color temps or from the temperature. So, uh, I mean, I pretty much agree the same same thing. I think tremper albino definitely gets affected more than anything. Okay. Um, the show is, we're getting to, to the end of the show, and there's one last thing that I definitely want to uh, touch on for all the new people out there that don't know. Um, and I'll give this one, I'll let this, I'll let this, uh, uh, one go with you, John. Um, the very basics about incubation. Um, males and females. What are the temperatures? Uh, now, now, leopard geckos are temperature sex determined. Um, that means that you can actually incubate your eggs for males or females, depending on the temperature. John, what are the temperatures that are uh, good for males, and what are the temperatures that will produce mostly females? Um, well, as Matt said, there's usually the first 14 days of incubation is what determines the actual sex of the gecko. So, um, you know, as, as he said, too, it's a good measure to to incubate for 21 days at that temperature, um, just to be sure. Um, as far as females go, I mean, even as low as, even as low as 76 up to like 82 is pretty much always going to be female. Um, even 83 is typically going to be female. And as you go up higher, um, the 85 to 87 range, you're going to start getting more of a mix, like 50-50. Above that, usually like um, 89 to like 92 is going to be pretty much all male. Um, above 92, you start getting, you actually go back to females again, which is which are called hot females. If you where, don't, if you don't experience mortality at that point, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. If it doesn't, you know, go too far. And the same thing, um, you know, hot hot females and even low, low females are typically known to have, you know, lower fertility rates. So it's usually best not to go that low or that high. Um, what I what I do, I don't think many people actually do this or if anybody even does this, but I, I start everybody off. Um, I start females off at about 80, and then I gradually move them up, just like Matt does. I, you know, over time I actually move them through incubators. Um, in total, I have like seven incubators, I believe. So I move them through until they reach um, the final incubator, which I hatch them out of. It's uh, roughly about 85.5 or 86 degrees. And then I actually do the opposite with males. I start them off at, at about 90, and I keep them in an incubator that actually fluctuates about two degrees a day. So they go from like 90, 90, 90.5 down to like 89 at night so they, they actually have a little fluctuation during the day and then they go down to uh, the next incubator low which is usually about 87 and then they actually all my geckos hatch out on the same incubator so males and females end up hatching out of like um, the incubator it's about 85.5 or 86 and the reason I do this I, I see a lot of males if I if I incubate them the whole time at, at 90 degrees um, by the way, if, if you incubate them at a higher temperature, they hatch faster. So, you know, you can actually incubate a, for a male and you can hatch them out in, you know, 30, 33 days or so. And if you incubate them at lower temperatures, they can go for a much longer period. So um, what happens when you, when you hatch them that quick is a lot of the males will, will develop too quickly and they'll actually have what's called thermal stress and they'll have problems. They could actually have deformities or they can hatch out really small. So I like to, 
to incubate them to start off with is just locking their sex, and then I actually drop them down to let them let them slow down a little bit. Um, you don't want to do it too quick, so again, make sure you do it in increments where you you drop them down a little bit at a time. But um, I find that you know adding a little bit more time to their incubation period by dropping them down a little bit, um, it, it decreases the deformities and some the ba- the babies hatch out a little stronger. Um, a lot of them get out of the egg easier. You know, a lot of a lot of eggs actually you lose a lot of eggs because they can't get out of the can't get out of the actual shell itself. So some of that can be you know a little bit too moist on the incubation medium, but also if if they're weak and they're they're too small and they're trying to get out, you know, sometimes that can do it too. Um, but yeah, that's basically that's basically what I do, and then it also makes it easy for me because I I basically only look in one incubator at the very end, and that's all I I pull eggs out of at the very end, or that's all I pull babies out of at the very end. So I only have to look in one, but. It's just a different method. I mean, other ways work, but that's the way I've been doing it. Okay. All right, cool. All right, well, we're not going to go on right tonight. Um, I think we did an awesome job um, basically laying out the groundwork for anybody that's looking to get uh, into leopard gecko breeding. Um, Short of actually buying a good leopard gecko handbook, and I swear behind, um, swear on Ron Tremper's uh, first book and his new book, leopard geckos the next generations if you're a beginner uh, it's essential that you research these uh, important um, things that you're going to need to know in order to properly breed and care for leopard geckos and any other species of animal for that matter Uh, find a good book there's no no substitute for that Um, I'd like to give each one of you guys an opportunity to uh, have some closing remarks and um, um, let's start with Marsha and then we'll go to uh, uh, John and Matt Am I on? Am I on the air? You've been on all night, Marcia. Okay, so I guess I'm not on mute. <laughs> nope, my poor brain. Um, first of all, I want to thank you very much for providing this time uh, for people to learn and, and listen in, and I think it's imperative. And I just, I just want to give you a big old hug for, for you know, providing this uh, opportunity for us to talk. And I also want to uh, thank, you know, Matt and John, whom I, you know, dearly respect. And I just think it's important that all of us have something to contribute. Um, And for those of you listening in, uh, thank you. And uh, the questions were really good, and I know that two hours isn't just isn't enough time to cover everything. But um, I just want to, you know, express my gratitude for everybody involved uh, for, for, you know, for participating in this. So that's my closing comment. Okay, go ahead, John. Uh, I'll just keep it brief. Just uh, thanks to everyone um, that's listening, and thanks, Dave and Marsha and Matt. You know, I appreciate the chance to be on here, and uh, it's uh, it's always fun. Um, I think it's always important to get out some of this information. You know, it saves me a little time when I'm answering questions. Sometimes I can just refer people to uh, the, the radio show, which, you know, it's nice with a busy schedule, so... And I think they get a little yep. bit more information this way too, rather than trying to type a, a twenty word comment, you know, and try to plug it all in there. So anyway, yeah, yeah. thank you. Uh appreciate it. And uh okay, cool. everybody have a good night. Okay. Thanks, John. Yeah. Thanks, Marsha. Yeah. Thanks, Marsha. Yeah. Thanks, Marsha. Y
All right. How about you, Matt? Yeah, I think they uh, they touched on everything. Uh, you know, I wish everybody the best, and uh, you know, good luck uh, with everybody out there with your you know trying to breed leopard geckos and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. Cool. All right. Thank you very Great. much, Marsha, uh, John, and Matt for coming my on pleasure, really David. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and Marsha, Marsha, you're going to be interviewing me soon. In a few weeks, I uh, think. I am. We need to, like, <laughs> lock our heads together and figure out what you're willing to divulge and what you're not, because I might ask, <laughs> ask some questions that you're not <laughs> prepared to answer. <laughs> you can hit me with whatever but, you want. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I think it's really important, and I think all the listeners out there would love to know more about you, David. I know. And really? that's what we're going to do. It'll be, it'll be fun. It'll, it'll be, fun. be a lot of fun. All right. It will. All right. Cool. Good night, everybody, and thank you so much for listening in and participating. And, and um, I don't know, everybody's just great. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let my guests go. I'm going to play the outro, and then I'll be back with my closing remarks. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance. They are our most effective defense against legislation that threatens our rights of exotic animal ownership. Sign up for their newsletter and donate if you can at usherp.org. Okay, everybody. Uh, Excellent, excellent episode tonight. I am so happy uh, with all the information and the way we were able to get it out so effectively. Um, As we said during the show, there's uh, there's no substitute for a good handbook and buying from a respectable breeder that's going to be able to handle individual issues uh, that come up. Now, keep in mind, animals are unpredictable, and you could do everything 100% perfect and still have an issue arise. That's where having that good breeder to turn turn to is, is of, of the utmost importance. I also want to let everyone know that Gecko Nation Radio is also totally behind U.S. ARC, and I'm going to be adding that to our outro plug soon for the next episode, hopefully. And um, I'm still going to support Herp Alliance and PJAC, and I think uh, our most uh, direct route to our goal of protecting our rights is to support all of these organizations and to to let go of any hard feelings that anyone has towards one or the other. All the nonsense about those types of things has to stop, and we need to unify, okay? Um, The old grudges are not even valid anymore. So most people don't even remember what they were about. So um, let's get together, everyone, and uh, let's win this so we don't lose our, our animals. Um, 
I think that's just about it. I think the last thing that I want to say before I end the show is this. Later, everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.